on this episode of Lawrence Talks. We speak with candidate for Douglas County District Attorney Cooper Overstreet. In addition to discussing his general platform, Cooper discusses the values he hopes to represent in his decision-making to assure fairness throughout the justice process and to make the DA's office more inclusive and diverse. The Lawrence Talks podcast is produced in part thanks to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the KU Philosophy Department. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Florence Talks, a podcast dedicated to exploring local events and introducing philosophical and humanities topics to the general public. I am your host, David Tomez. Today, we continue our coverage of state and local elections. For this, I would like to welcome Democratic candidate for Douglas County District Attorney, Cooper Overstreet. Cooper, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, David. And this is, you know, I've listened to Lawrence Talks before. This is an honor to, to be on an episode of Lawrence Talks, you know, a great local podcast, uh, you know, and I really admire, you know, the way that it's conducted and everything. So I'm excited to talk about the issues and talk about, you know, my views of justice. So thank you for having me. I appreciate that. And, and so to begin, I'd like to, I'd like to begin as I usually do with these, with these uh, sort of uh, discussions with local candidates, and that's to discuss who they are as, as uh, persons, as because sometimes we don't get that sense on, on, on forums or any other sort of way. And, and especially now with COVID going on, it's hard for maybe candidates to, to really go and meet people in, in person. So I'd like to start there is with you discussing who Cooper Overstreet is as the person. Well, uh, I am, obviously I'm an attorney. I practice here in Lawrence. Uh, I do criminal defense. I was born and raised in Augusta, Kansas, a small town down by Wichita. I oftentimes have to tell people that I'm from Wichita who aren't really familiar with Kansas geography because if I tell them I'm from Augusta, they think I'm either from Maine or Georgia, which is it's confusing, especially since I don't have a, a Southern accent. But, you know, I was born and raised down there, you know, by you know, my dad's a over-the-road truck driver. So he wasn't, you know, because of work, he wasn't around a whole lot. Him and my mom were divorced. And so I was really raised primarily by my mom, uh, you know, I had three siblings. And, you know, it was always weird kind of growing up because my mom is from the East Coast, from back East. She's a transplant in Kansas. Now, she's not really a transplant anymore because she's lived here for like 40 years. But she grew up in a completely different environment than your average small town Kansas upbringing. And, you know, when I was raised by my mom, we were from a town, small town that was rural conservative. And my mom was not conservative. She was, she's a liberal from the East Coast. And, you know, she really instilled those values in me from a really young age. Needless to say, I was almost an outcast with those values in the community that I grew up in. You know, my mom taught me a lot about you know, my ideas of justice and fairness and, you know, progressivism and things that I've really been trying to bring to this campaign, you know, I learned from my mother because, you know, she was a outcast in her own community my entire upbringing, you know, and I moved up here to Lawrence about 15, 16 years ago now uh, to go to KU. You know, both of my older brothers went to KU. I always wanted to go to KU, you know, because I had seen my brothers go here and just how cool Lawrence was as a community and how how much cool stuff there was to do and how fun it is and just how progressive folks were and how this is a community where you can, you know, be yourself. It's a community where you 
aren't going to be punished for being who you are. You're going to be, you know, celebrated for that. And I saw that from a young age and that's why I wanted to go to KU. So I graduated with my undergrad in 2010. I had my, got my undergrad degree in a bachelor of arts in history. And then I took another year. Um, I call it a victory lap. My fifth year, I got my BA in political science. After that, you know, I decided I wanted to go to KU law because I wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to be a specific type of attorney. I only wanted to be one type of attorney, and that was a criminal defense attorney. I don't know what it was that made me want to be a criminal defense attorney, other than if I had to guess, I've always rooted for the underdog. I've always been somebody who's empathized and sympathized with folks who are in positions where they don't have the most advantages. They're maybe not getting a fair shake. And, you know, I've always wanted to place myself in a position where I can help those folks. And then I go back to my upbringing, actually, when I was, you know, I saw my mom, you know, struggling to get by as a single mom with four kids in a town that she didn't really know anyone and in a, you know, with different beliefs and different ideas than the community that she was a part of. And, you know, I saw my mom struggle financially. You know, I saw her struggle with the legal system. And, you know, not to the degree that I see my clients and I see so many folks right now in our justice system struggle, but I remember when I was about 12, my mom, she got her driver's license suspended because she had some tickets that she couldn't pay and things kind of snowballed and added up and then her driver's license got suspended. And I remember how big of a deal that was for my mom because her car was just, her being able to drive was her livelihood because she had to drive for work. She cleans houses. That's what she does. She actually still does it. And in order to clean houses, she had to drive to the houses and they don't, they didn't have Uber back then. You know, they didn't have buses back then. Well, they didn't have buses in my community anyway. And so my mom was, she was just terrified that she wasn't going to be able to support our family if she couldn't drive to work. And, you know, I remember her just pacing back and forth in the living room one night having this conversation with herself. And so she did everything she could. She put some, whatever money she had together to hire a neighborhood girl to drive me and my siblings to school. But she decided that she was just going to break the law. She was going to drive to work. She's going to take the back roads and hope that she didn't get pulled over, you know, and she didn't get pulled over. Luckily, she never went to jail. You know, consider that for what you will. Maybe it's because my mom is a white lady, you know, she in a community of a lot of white folks, but she never went to jail. But I remember from that young age, and it really, you know, has hit me now in this campaign that we're doing because it's a campaign based around justice and the ideas of justice and fairness. And I asked myself, why is it that you decided to go to law school and be a defense attorney? And I think back to that situation with my mom and I think about experiencing the justice system in that life at that young of an age and seeing a system that forces a single mom to make decisions about, should I drive to work and you know provide for my family or risk going to jail? You know, and seeing that kind of struggle that has to happen, that really colored a lot of my ideas about justice and fairness and about the the criminal legal system. And I think that's really ultimately why I said I want to be a defense attorney, because I think I want to go into court and defend folks who are just like my mom. Everybody I go into court now, I see little bits and pieces of my mom in them when I'm defending them in court. You know, folks who are, for one reason or another, you know, maybe they've got three out of the four things that they need to be successful in the system, but that fourth one just eludes them. And because they don't have that, you know, they fail. So 
you know, seeing that from that young age made me want to go to law school. You know, when I was at KU Law, I focused on criminal law classes. Once again, I didn't really focus on any of the other areas of law. I never really had an interest in civil practice or in corporate law. Not that that's not, you know, there's not lawyers out there who do good things in those fields, but criminal law was what I wanted to do. Um, and so as soon as I graduated, I became a criminal defense attorney here in Lawrence, and I've been doing that ever since. And, you know, I've had the, the ability, you know, I really wanted to work in a public defender's office when I, when I graduated. Um, I wanted to, I just liked the idea of being a public defender. To me, it sounded like, you know, that's the, just the words public defender made me feel like, you know, it was an active process of going into court and defending folks. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have a public defender's office in Lawrence. And, you know, I had a lot of loan debt when I came out of law school, as most folks do, a lot of student loan debt. You know, I met my wife, who's a Lawrence Townie, who's born and raised here, Chesty Lyon. She went to LHS. And, you know, I wanted to put down roots in Lawrence. And so, and I wanted to work in Lawrence, right? And so that's why I, you know, I joined a private defense firm here in Lawrence, a small one. And I started practicing criminal law. And I've, I loved every minute of it, you know, and I still do doing criminal law. It's not just doing it here in, in Douglas County, though. That's where most of my cases are. I practice all over the state of Kansas. You know, I go out to small little courthouses in Western Kansas where, you know, all, almost like you go back in time, those courthouses, Perry Mason style courthouses is what I call them with the old, you know, wooden fixtures. And, you know, we do cases there and we go down to Wichita, the biggest county in the state, do cases there. And so I've really gotten that experience just in the courtroom doing all sorts of different cases and, you know, learning about the justice system from that perspective, which in a DA's race, that's a fundamentally different perspective than your opponents usually. The perspective being on the other side of the courtroom as a defense attorney, it's a lot different than being, you know, on the side of a prosecutor. Um, but I've loved every minute of it, and it's given me an opportunity to really go into court and tell my clients stories. You know, I go in there and I try to just find out the good things about them, which everyone has a good thing. You know, everybody does. Find those things and tell that story to the judge. Tell that story to the prosecutor. Try to humanize my clients in, you know, the system, which I've seen so much, it's all about taking away humanity. You know, it's all about divorcing ourselves from who the people are that are in the system and treating them more like they're little cogs in the machine or pieces that just get moved around and shuffled. You know, as a defense attorney, you don't have that luxury. You know, you're intimately involved with each and every case that you get because that's what your clients expect from you because you're the, if you don't do it, then no one else does. And so that's, that was, so if I had to say who I am and somebody who roots for the underdog, how that translates to, you know, running in a DA's race is that I think all of our leaders that we have should see themselves as public defenders in one way or the other, right? Um, we're defending our, you know, our elected leaders are defending our democracy. They're defending our, our rights, our liberties and in the court system, a DA is they're advocating for justice and they're defending folks' constitutional rights who come into that court system and they're advocating for everyone. And so those things to me that I've learned as a defense attorney translate into being a prosecutor, into being a DA, because I think now more than ever, you know, we need that human side of things. We need a, you know, we need to reimagine what being a DA is. You know, how best can we make our community safer? Is it the old way of doing things where, you know, we're, we're 
getting convictions or building bigger jails or throwing folks into jail? Or is it a new way of looking at the system as a lot of moving parts that oftentimes, you know, maybe our criminal legal system isn't good at solving a lot of our social problems in this country. And maybe we need to look elsewhere to solve those problems. And so a DA, is the DA part of that problem or part of the solution? So if I had to say that's who I am, that's who I am. And that's why I'm running in this campaign is to create a, you know, an office that advocates for people. Uh, thank you, Cooper. And on the point of, on some of the points that you, you just uh, discussed in your response, how sympathetic, and you, you, you sort of touched, touched upon this a little bit, but I wanted to uh, fixate it on, on a little bit more. How sympathetic is our, do, have you found in, in, in working as, as a defense attorney, is the legal system two stories like your mother's um, and people who have other sort of maybe obligations or valid reasons for sort of maybe minimizing the, the force of the law and their actions? So. If that, if that makes sense. Does, does, so yeah, how, how sympathetic has, in your experience, has a court system been to stories like, like your mom's? Well, I, I think that we have to look at really at what the court system for so long has been set up to do in this country, you know, and what it fundamentally to me, it comes down to what, you know, one's version of what, how laws should be enforced and where laws should come from even comes from if we're going to get into philosophy. I always say that in the, in the, you know, when it comes to criminal law and, you know, ideas of jurisprudence, there's the idea that you can be a natural, you can have a theory of natural law, which is right, which is that some laws are laws because that's naturally how they should be and that they're just because not necessarily because they're created by legislatures, but because that's the way things should be. And then you have your more positivist way of looking at laws, which is the idea that laws that are written laws that are adopted by legislatures which are elected by individuals and by citizens you know those laws are just because they are laws right and so <laughs> i guess the way i distill it is do you look at the spirit of the law or the letter of the law right and i find so often that our criminal legal system it falls towards the latter which is the letter of the law and that there's no room for sympathy from those who are interpreting it, those who are enforcing it. There's that it's just there's no room for that. There's no room for sympathy or empathy towards the folks that they're enforcing it against. And I see it every day in my practice. I see it in, you know, how I see it from prosecutors, I see it from judges, I see it from other defense attorneys. You know, I've probably been guilty of it myself from time to time as a defense attorney, which is the idea, well, you broke the law, let's move on. Right. You might have a valid reason for doing it, but everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a reason. I can't, you know, and so I'll discount your story just because I hear it so often. But I really do think that that is really a big part of what's gotten us to where we are today in our legal system, our inability of our and I call it the criminal legal system for a reason. I'm careful to say criminal justice system because I don't know. I tend to think justice is absent from that system most of the time. That sympathy and that empathy aren't there because they're not required there in order to enforce the laws we have now. We aren't required to look at who the people are that are coming into the system and their circumstances and what it is that might have brought them there. Because when we do look at those things, we see so many different layers of poverty, of substance abuse, of you know mental illness, of racism 
most importantly. Those things are ugly things to look at. And the silence that we that we as a community have towards those things is, is more convenient than having to actually look at those things. And so, you know, if I had to say, you know, when we talk about what a progressive prosecutor is, which is, you know, what I am running on the platform of other progressive prosecutors who have been elected all over the country, it's acknowledging that a legal system has to consider the humans that go into it every day and has to look at them as humans, both the victims and survivors and the defendants everyone involved and have a holistic approach to how we look at criminal justice. And so, and probably as a defense attorney representing people, I see, I see that lack of empathy and it's stark. And I see, you know, you wears on you having to go into court every day and try to convince others to care about your client, you know, because sometimes as the defense attorney, most of the time, you're the only one who cares. And so it's a daunting, daunting thing. But I do think that we can change the system and we can reimagine it to bring those things into it and to have prosecutors and judges who care, you know, because I think fundamentally folks have that ability. And we say in the criminal defense community, uh, you know, we don't defend crimes, we defend people, right? We have to look at the person, not the offense that they're allegedly committed. And so I think we can do that from the prosecution end as well. A great deal of what you you just said resonates not just with my own views, but a lot of the work because a lot of the work that I I do is about jurisprudence and is about legal legal theory and the way that judges make decisions. And so your discussion of natural law and positivism is just exactly where where my work sort of falls into. So it is, that sort of excited my my intellectual inclinations, I guess. Uh, but I, I'll tell you, that's the deepest I get into it. So it's not going to get any deeper than that, probably. I, no, I get it. I, I mean, I, I wish we could, I, but I will refrain from doing so for now because I want to, maybe on another on another occasion. But from reading about some of the literature, some of the articles on on progressive, specifically progressive district attorneys, it strikes me, and you mentioned holistic, and I think I think that's the idea that I got from it too, is it's not just about progressivism in terms of policies, but it's also progressivism in terms of the approach to how you do your job. Is that is that right? Yeah. And you know, I think that our criminal legal system is regressive and it's been regressive for years. I don't know if our legal system attracts the most forward thinking you know, policies or the forward, most forward-thinking practices. I think that when we think about a system that's functioned so long in order just to be tough on crime and to be tough on individuals who commit crimes, there's not a lot of room for progressive forward-thinking analysis in that equation. It's you did the crime, you do the time. You know, you, you committed a crime, you go to jail. I think it's only been in the last, you know, couple of years that we've seen, you know, finally that that narrative, the politics of fear that have been driving mass incarceration in this country for so long that, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, some was, you know, some uh, smart politician somewhere decided that it would be easy to get elected by appealing to folks sense of security and their fear um, and saying, you know, look, think of, you know, George Bush and the Willie Horton ad and the, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan and all of those folks who, you know, convinced individuals that 
their security was at risk if they didn't vote for them. And, you know, it's really led to this phenomenon that's happened over the last 40 years, which coincides directly with the rapid, rapid increase of our nation's prison population is the idea that we're going to govern through crime. We're going to use crime as a means of govern, governing. And uh, that has translated to a, a criminal legal system that itself doesn't have room for progressive thought. It doesn't because those two things don't coincide. It doesn't have room to stop and consider root causes. And it's been wildly, wildly slow to change its practices. But we've only seen just because the numbers now are becoming so stark, you know, the over 2 million folks incarcerated in our nation's prisons and, and jails, you know, more than any, you know, country percentage-wise in the world, you know, are rapidly, rapidly increasing rates of local county jails that are mass incarceration in those local county jails. And just the idea that our criminal legal system is just getting such a big footprint in our society that we've gone to this from one extreme to the other. Now it's almost a, a form of a police state, you know, progressive prosecutors are part of that new wave, right? They're part of that wave. And I'll tell you, they're all across the country and most of them are defense attorneys. You know, defense attorneys are really good about beating themselves up and telling themselves that they can't do things. because That's just the mentality you have to have to go into court and defend folks every day. And they've told themselves forever that they can't be prosecutors and that they can't be part of that system, that end of things. But now we're starting to realize that maybe defense attorneys are the ones who have the best perspective to really change that way of thinking. And that's why these progressive prosecutors all across the country are former defense attorneys. Jose Garza down in Austin, Texas, was just elected last night, you know, on a progressive, uh, he's, he's somebody who I myself have, you know, I've, I've followed his campaign. He's been a, you know, a role model for me sort of in how I've conducted my campaign, his ideas and his policies are ones that I believe in. And he was just elected last night on a policy, you know, as a public defender saying, these are the things we can do. And, and so, yeah, we finally are seeing that room for progressive change. But what that means is that the establishment and the status quo, that's when they push back even more and they become more entrenched. And that's why, but, you know, when you have a movement, which is what the progressive prosecutor movement is, movements um, can't be held back by the status quo because they're they're on their own they're in and of their own right a movement you know you don't control it as an individual it just happens so uh yeah we're that's that's what we're a part of right now and it's great and we're finally seeing that those issues in our criminal legal system coming into contrast with more and more folks caring about it and as they care about it they'll see yeah we need a system that we need to reimagine the system that we have uh, i i I caught wind of that that race in Austin, and that's that's where my wife and I are from is is from Austin, Texas, um, and so it was it was interesting to see that happen. I mean, I'm not surprised that it happened in Austin because Austin is a well. My wife and I call I guess we call I guess Lawrence Austin before the big business boom. I think because I think Austin was at one point very. I mean, it still is is very progressive and and. Um, diverse and, and culture and, and, and everything with live music. But I think Lawrence is sort of what Austin was before corp everything became corporate. And so it's, it's been, at least from, from that perspective, it's been, we found, we've, we found uh, Lawrence to be very, very home-like. Well, in Austin's, the problems in the criminal legal system in Austin, though it's a much bigger city that Jose was running against were the same problems that we see in count in, 
just like we have in Douglas County, you know, jail populations ever increasing, incumbent district attorneys who are uh, contributing to the problem with their policies, um, you know, segregation both in the community, you know, um, and in their jail population, massive disproportionate impacts of, you know, minority, you know, black populations. Those are things we see right here, you know, and those are things we see no matter how liberal or progressive the community is, the criminal legal system is still that where that concentrated discrimination exists in our society in the criminal legal system. It's never more apparent and it's never more harmful than in the, the legal system. And so down in Austin, Jose was going against those same things and running that platform of basically saying that, hey, we need to acknowledge that our criminal legal system is not good at solving all of the social ills that our society has and the problems that our society has. In fact, our criminal legal system makes those things worse. And so we need to lessen the footprint of the system and actually start using it to advocate and protect those who are actually being harmed. Um, And so, you know, we see that happening here too. We like to say Lawrence is the, Douglas County is the blue the speck of blue and the red sea kind of in Kansas. But are we, I mean, are we willing to say that, you know, we, you know, how, how far are we willing to go with our progressivism and with our uh, ideas of justice and fairness in Douglas County? I think we're willing to go a great deal further. And, and I think that I've, what I've seen in this campaign, that there's a lot of folks out there who are, but I also at the same time, they're acknowledging that we can't, call ourselves truly progressives and have a jail population that is 25% black when, you know, just under 5% of our population as a whole in Douglas County is uh, black. So, you know, these are issues and they're issues that are important to folks who want Lawrence to be a model for, you know, progressivism and, you know, inclusion throughout the and so, yeah, it's been, it's, it's part of a wave. The progressive prosecutor wave is taking hold and I, and I love seeing it. Yeah, and, and the movement also, you, you t- again, you touched a little bit on this as well, but it regards the scope of, of the DA's job. And it, it, I think it identifies a shift in what it means to be successful in that job. So I wonder if we could we could talk about that too. What do you consider to be the scope of the DA position? Does it does it involve advocacy at, at for changes in state policy? And what does it mean to be uh, successful as a, as a DA? Well, the scope of the DA position is massive. I mean, it just is, and we can't. We just have to acknowledge that. You know, we have to acknowledge that a DA, especially in a county like Douglas County, where we have a three three person county commission. Um, and you know, most of we, we have to acknowledge that the district attorney is the most powerful elected official in this County. And I've said that throughout this campaign because folks ask me what the DA does. And I mean, think about it. Does any other elected official have the, uh, uh, you know, utmost authority to decide who gets charged with a crime and who doesn't, you know, that's prosecutorial discretion. That is an immense amount of power that scope, you know, in, you know, the the problem, you know, our leaders might want folks to think that it's not that much power and that their hands are tied, but at the end of the day, that power exists and we entrust them with that power. You know, we entrust our current DA with the power to decide if somebody's going to get charged with a crime and go to the jail or if they're going to go home and be with their family. That power can't be, it can't be diverted, it can't be given to other folks, it can't be overruled by a judge. It's there whether we like it or not. And so we first need to acknowledge that that the scope of what a DA can do is massive just 
on by the very nature of prosecutorial discretion. And, you know, a DA is the, a DA needs to step up and be a leader on what criminal justice is and what the criminal justice system should be in, in our county. You know, that DA is the one who handles the cases and sees how they're treated in court, sees the police officers and how they're investigating the cases, sees the judges and how they're leveling down sentences. And that's, a, that's something that a DA needs to step up and lead on which is that, you know, here's how we are going to create a more fair system in Douglas County. And that first and foremost is by telling people exactly what the system is doing in the first place. Uh, We see a lot of obfuscation right now. We see a lot of, you know, throwing our hands up and saying, well, we don't know what to do. You know, we don't have the power to do that. That's, um, quite frankly, that's that's deflecting blame and responsibility. A DA is the because of that prosecutorial discretion, they should know every single case and how they're being investigated and charged that come in there. And so I think your second question was, you know, what do you look at, you know, what would I look at as, you know, being a successful prosecutor or what do we look at? And I've said a lot in this campaign is that that's, that's what I'm trying to fundamentally change is we need to fundamentally change what our metrics of success are as in our criminal legal system for prosecutors. No longer can we afford to have career prosecutors who believe that their number one priority in their job is just getting convictions and just throwing people in jail. Our system is far too fragile and there's far too many issues for that to be the sole responsibility of a prosecutor. No, it's it goes much deeper than that, okay? In that more abstract sense, you're an arbiter of fairness and justice in the system. But I mean, in a in a more practical sense, you know, convictions, the idea, this idea that's been sold over and over from career prosecutors that convictions is what the people of Douglas County want to see. Uh, it's not working anymore. OK, because when everything when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to become a nail and you stop differentiating between what are the worthy convictions and which are the ones that are just causing more harm than good. Um, no, you have to be someone who's willing to say, I want to lessen the footprint of the criminal legal system. I want to take cases out of that courthouse and I want to, you know, I want to refer folks to treatment resources in the community that are much more, that have a much higher probability and likelihood of success, that have folks who know how to do the treatment, that know how to interact with people. And I want to refer those cases out of the criminal legal system. You know, our role, our fundamental role as a prosecutor is to keep the community safe. You know, mass incarceration has done just the opposite. (laughs) Uh, Every time you take someone out of their family structure and you put them in jail for even three or four days, you're making your community less safe. You're making that, their community less safe because you're taking away an income source. You're taking away a support system. You're taking away a family member. You're destabilizing communities. Jails don't make communities safer. What makes communities safer are the things that we know, which is fair, you know, access to housing, access to resources, access to treatment affordability of those things as well. And those are what make communities safer and not jails. Jails are a last resort. They always are. And so as a DA, you need to understand that and you need to be willing to defer to those programs and bring those stakeholders in the community to the table. So you can, you know, acknowledge that, Hey, we don't know everything. And 
we aren't set up to be a, you know, the criminal legal system right now isn't set up to be a treatment provider. It's not set up to be a mental health treatment provider, substance abuse treatment provider, family counselor. No, it's set up to do one thing, and that's punish people. And that is, you know, what a DA needs to firmly understand. And so those metrics of success do need to be changed. And that's the whole essence of our platform. It's changing our metrics of success. What is a victory in our criminal legal system? So in the, this next this next question has to do with values and, and interpretation, I guess, in some sense, interpretation of data or using data to determine what you should do in a particular particular case. Because I think one of the at least conversations that I've noticed being talked about a lot in, in these local debates is the use of one, the, the need for better data, and 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 two, the the use of the active use of data to determine what sort of policies should be enacted. At the same time, there is some additional work that needs to be done once we do have that data, and that's connecting the data to particular uh, policies and connecting it to what we might might say are are normative thoughts, actions, and so on. Um, and that and that sort of uh, connection or that connection is bridged with a consideration of values. And so that this is where this question the question here is, what sort of values do you hope to represent in your decisions as you connect the data to actual prescriptions of uh, in your office? Well, that's a great question, and it's 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 a deep question. It's a question that focuses on you know what are your you know what is your conception conception of what justice is and the conception of fairness in our system, you know, and the simplest sense, you know, our values need to be aligned with our community's values, which are, you know, as much as possible, what are the lived experiences of the folks who are in our justice system every single day? And how can we, you know, as if this is a philosophical, philosophy podcast, Plato said, you know, what justice was, was returning debts owed and helping friends, right? And so how can we repair harm in our community? The justice system, the legal system has created so much harm. Our values need to be centered around repairing that harm and restoring uh, some semblance of justice in our system right now. So harm reduction obviously is key to that as well. The most, you know, helping the most possible people and repairing harm in communities while, you know, acknowledging the need to keep the community safe. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You know, that's our, our legal system now likes to tell us that you can't, you know, you can't, you know, really devote all of your time to social services because then you're failing to keep our community safe from those who are committing crimes. And then the two aren't mutually exclusive because we've seen over and over, and you talk, talk about data, all the data shows that societies, you know, that, that value social services and access to things like treatment programs are far safer than those that devalue those things. Uh, it's just clear that, you know, we keep our communities safe by keep, keeping communities intact 
right? By keeping folks with their families, by keeping them with their mental health professionals and their treatment providers. So our values need to be aligned with keeping our communities safe and understanding that the communities that are the safest are the ones that are intact and that don't incarcerate large amounts of specific populations under the guise of, you know, justice or under the guise of community safety. Safety means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. But overall, a healthy community is a safe community. And so keeping families together, keeping folks out of the justice system. So, I mean, it really touches on what your conception of justice is, right? And justice is fairness. It's equality. It's the idea that when you step foot into that courthouse, you will be treated as best as possible on a level playing field and equitably as the other people on the other side. And there's a lot of things that we need to do in order to get to that point because we certainly aren't at that point right now. Um, just policy-wise, I mean, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to enact policies right now that acknowledge that our justice system is racist. It is racist. It is systemic racism runs deep. It runs every part from policing to prosecuting to how sentences are handed down to how folks are treated when they're incarcerated to how long they're incarcerated for. It's everywhere. Um, and a DA is the, is the person responsible for touching on almost all of those things in the legal system. So that's why as DA, one thing I really value is the policies that I stand for that end, that seek to end that systemic racism. You know, ending cash bail, which we've seen over and over again, disproportionately affects black and brown folks and poor folks and punishes people because of their poverty, keeps them incarcerated when they should otherwise be with their families. That's how communities continue to be destabilized. Ending the war on drugs, you know, this is not over. It certainly has not been ended in Douglas County. I know personally as an attorney who represents a lot of folks charged with drug crimes, um, how the war on drugs is being fought has changed, but fighting is still happening. I mean, we just saw uh, in Kansas a couple weeks ago that the you know the federal U.S. Attorney's Office gave a one million dollar grant to the Kansas Bureau of Investigation to perpetuate you know the war on drugs and continue fighting you know drug distribution. Um, instead of, I mean, I. I shudder to think what that million dollars would look like if given to adequate treatment programs and, you know, the jurisdictions in our that need them the most. I mean, that a million dollars for drug treatment goes a long way. And ending the war on drugs because of the way that it disproportionately affects communities of color. I mean, we know that for a fact. We know that a young black man in this country is four times more likely to be arrested for a marijuana-related offense than a young white man. Uh, we know that, you know, the majority of uh, the 25%, you know, the 25% incarceration rate for, for black folks in our county jail, we know that a lot of that is due to how they're dis disparately treated because of the war on drugs. So ending things like that. And one thing, you know, I think seeing is that, you know, we need to create a more level playing field between the DA's office and, you know, the other side of the the, de the defense bar. Uh, we have got good appointed attorneys here in Douglas County, but we don't have a public defender's office. I believe we need a public defender's office in Douglas County. And I believe we need that because that will make our system more fair because we'll know that we have a coalesced group of public defenders who are working to make sure folks get their fair trial. And oftentimes PD's offices give DA's offices pushback 
But I'm fine with that as long as I know as DA that folks are getting their right to a fair trial and that they're not sitting in jail for years and years without being convicted of a crime. So I've advocated, you know, as much as I can as, you know, DA, I can't create a PD's office, but I would advocate for the creation of one. I think it's far past time that we had one here in Douglas County. Uh, we're one of the biggest counties in Kansas to not have a PD's office. So things like that, you know, and that goes back to once again, acknowledging that the way we're doing things now is not working and acknowledging that we can't just rely on the folks who are in the system to do more to, you know, to get more training that we need to create a new system and we need to reimagine things. And, you know, that's what our campaign's about. In that response to you at, at the end there, you mentioned two of the policies that I wanted to bring out in this discussion. And the first one was uh, ending cash bail. Uh, I know, I think in one of the recent forums, it was, I think, questioned just how maybe a DA can, what, what you know, what's within the DA's power and, and, and scope, I guess, to end cash bail. In what ways can you end it in in uh, in, in Kansas? Because I know, uh, or in, in in our specifically in our county, because I know from or from reading a little bit, and my wife was a paralegal as well, so she has a she tried to share with me how it, how my how it works here too. But so currently, that the bail disc- uh, discretion is left with a judge, and they're the way that they determine that. I think it's, I think it's it's formalized in that the actual statute is to consider the sort the type of crime that the person is accused of and then they base their their judgment their bail judgment on on those two on those things so to what extent can da get involved in that in that discussion and then maybe help lead uh ending it outright as a policy i mean that's a great question and you know it's once again goes back to you know, what narrative have we been sold by our leaders in the criminal legal system about what can and can't be done and, you know, how tied are their hands in doing things? And I'll tell you right now, the majority of the folks in Douglas County Jail right now are there because the, this district attorney's office has asked that the judge set a cash bond for them. Um, instead of, you know, if this DA's office had said, we think that person should be released on their own recognizance, they wouldn't be in the jail. And that's that power we talk about that a DA has. No one's in that jail, or very few folks are in that jail because that DA doesn't want them in that jail, okay? And a lot of those folks, just by very nature of it being a a county jail, they're in there without having been convicted of a crime yet. You know, they haven't had their trial yet. Folks who, the only folks who are there serving a sentence would be for misdemeanors, and that's not a whole lot. Um, so a DA has an immense, immense role in the setting of bail in any county. Don't let any any person tell you they don't, because they do, because they're the ones that are there at every single first appearance. Uh, they're there at the first appearance where the, they are the ones deciding who gets charged with the offense, and they're asking the judge what, you know, to set a bond of a certain amount. They're all, That's just how the process works out. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, people that, you know, are against ending cash bail, they often go back to the idea that, well, you know, the Constitution requires there to be cash bail. And that's true. The Constitution does require there to be bail. And that's precisely so prosecutors like the DA we have now aren't keeping folks in jail just on their own whim prior to their trial and leaving them there without giving them an ability to get out. That's set up to protect defendants. But one thing the Constitution does not say is that an individual's ability to get out of the jail must be predicated on their ability to pay money. 
Okay, and that's the issue that we have. We're taking, you know, what opponents of ending cash bail are doing is they're taking, you know, something that I value, which is the Constitution that's meant to protect defendants, and turning it around and using it as an excuse for why they actually must harm those defendants. Um, in actuality, and even if you look at the Kansas, you know, bail statute, uh, our conditions of release statute, which is KSA, it's in Article 28 in our criminal procedure rules, it has a declaration of purpose. And that declaration of that purpose in our statute specifically says that the purpose of this article is to assure that all persons, regardless of their financial status, shall not needlessly be detained pending their appearance to answer charges or to testify when detention serves neither the ends of justice nor the public interest. So our law is set up in the state of Kansas to presume that folks should be released prior to their trial because that's what the Constitution mandates. When cash bail gets involved, cash bail does just the opposite. Cash bail punishes folks. It's used in a punitive manner by the majority of prosecutors now who use it because they know that if they can keep folks in jail prior to their trial, they're more likely to plead out in a way that's not favorable to them and more favorable to using those old metrics of success that we look at, which is longer, you know, DAs, career prosecutors like to say longer sentences, you know, more convictions. They know that they'll get that. They can hang that over their head. What we want to do in our office is we want to end cash bail by doing what the statute says. We want to use that statute that says that the presumption is that folks should be released prior to their, because they haven't been convicted of a crime. And the community will actually be safer by keeping them out of the jail because the statistics all show that just by putting them in that jail for a week, they're more likely to, they're more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system at a later date. They're more likely to lose access to their housing, to their job, to their family, and to their resources in the community that are all things we know that keep communities safe. So we'll do that by having prosecutors in our office that just follow the presumption, which is a presumption of release, right? And we don't have to ask for a cash bail. We'll say, judge, we want this individual released on an OR bond. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, what if the judge doesn't listen to you? Well, A, judges oftentimes listen to prosecutors because prosecutors know the case. They, the district attorney's office knows the case. Judges defer to both defense attorneys and prosecutors in criminal cases because the judges see tons of cases, right? They don't have an intimate knowledge of each individual one. They defer to what the position of the district attorney is. That is why I say that's such a powerful position. And the DA, what they tell the judge most often goes. And in those limited circumstances where the judge doesn't listen to the DA, me, my prosecutors, what they'll do is they'll work with the defense attorney actually to reach a resolution in that case as quickly as possible, or even reduce charges down to a level where the judge is more comfortable releasing that individual prior to trial. It's a novel approach, but it's an approach that's only novel because right now, RDA uses cash bail in a punitive manner to keep folks in jail. That's just how it is. That's how career prosecutors are trained. Uh, we want to make it about community safety, and we think communities are safer when less folks are in jail prior to trial. And we think that, and obviously the statute agrees with us, the Kansas law agrees with us, presumption of release. So that's what we want to do. We want to focus on that. And yeah, eventually what we want to do is we want to advocate at the legislative level. Bail reform acts are just taking hold all over the country right now. I think, I think everybody everywhere agrees that cash bail, well, I shouldn't say that because I think there's folks here in Douglas County who don't agree this, but the idea that cash bail is an antiquated system that is 
that punishes folks for being poor and, you know, is racist as well is taking hold. And so we're seeing bail reform statutes happen. And, you know, we definitely want to advocate and I would lobby for a bail reform act here. You know, we've had representatives right here from Douglas County who've lobbied for those things. And I would work with them to lobby for something like that happening here. But what we have to make sure that we're doing is we have to make sure that any statute that, uh, you know, that, that, that creates an alternate way of determining who gets released prior to trial, you know, a lot of those statutes use risk assessments. They try to predict future dangerousness of individuals. But unfortunately, in the criminal legal system, what we see all too often is that those risk assessments themselves, you take into account things that are specifically related to an individual's race or their poverty. It basically, they punish those risk assessments themselves, punish folks for being poor and punish them for being black or brown. So we, if we're going to use risk assessments, we have to make sure that they are validated and that they're, they're what we call dynamic, you know, that they take into account, you know, various more nuanced approaches to how you determine risk. And, you know, that is, you know, something certainly that any, DA needs to be on the forefront of, you know, bringing, you know, that research into the equation. But right now it's, it's really easy. We follow the presumption. We don't use cash bail as a means to punish folks. And it's happening every day here in Douglas County. I just was in first appearances two weeks ago with a client and I saw the DA, you know, asking, I saw the prosecutor in there asking for a $200 cash or surety bond, you know, for an individual who was charged with a misdemeanor. It made no sense to me. That to me was strictly punitive because they probably didn't have two hundred dollars to get out, and so you know that needs to end. It's it's easy to do if you follow the presumption and you make fact based determinations about who needs to be incarcerated pretrial, which isn't a whole lot of folks. And another thing that we do along with that is is that you know if there is an individual who we think might pose a safety risk. Um, how do we make that individual less of a safety risk other than by throwing them in the jail, right? And that's where pretrial comes in. And But right now, what we see with the pretrial program in Douglas County, which was only set up recently, is that it's massively ineffective in doing that because what it really does is it serves as a form of probation for folks who are on bond, who haven't been convicted of anything. It, you know, it has punitive you know, aspects to it, that, you know, like drug testing and alcohol testing. You've got to report on this date and at this time. But it doesn't provide services for folks. The services that would be necessary to ensure that folks have access to the court system and the resources that will keep them from being a danger to society. We want to focus pretrial on services and less on punitive aspects and less on monitoring and services that, you know, making sure folks have access to their mental health resources, make sure that folks, you know, here's a novel idea. And it's once again, only novel because it hasn't been done here, but it's been done in so many other places is over and over. We see DAs requiring defendants to come to court for appearances that don't even matter requiring them to come to court just so they can see their face when, you know, that's taking them away from, they have to find time off of work, they have to find childcare, they have to find a ride. And then they come to court and they sit there for two hours in the docket. And then they get up there and all that happens is their case gets moved to a different date. I know because that I've had to do that before with my clients because the DAs required their appearance. As DA, I'm not going to require unnecessary appearances for defendants. 
you know, I'm not going to force them because what happens if that defendant doesn't show up to that appearance, even though the appearance itself didn't matter, the judge will, the DA will ask for a warrant for that person's arrest. And then that person will get arrested and go to the jail. So we're going to limit the amount of unnecessary appearances. And we're going to explore the idea that, you know, maybe folks don't come to court, not because they're skipping out on their court date, but maybe it's just because they don't have the ability to do that. So we're going to focus on, you know, things like how do we get folks rides to court if they have to come to court? Are there ride share programs that are available? Is there some sort of child care opportunity, child care program that we can have at the courthouse? It's been done in other jurisdictions. I think it's a great idea because I've had clients who've had to bring their children to court before and they've been chastised by the judge for bringing their kids to court. And I tell the judge, well, they had no other place to go. School's not in session today. So child care at the courthouse, you know, acknowledging that, our justice system right now has so many barriers to access and breaking down those barriers. And that all goes into our process of understanding that that's how you eliminate cash bail is you got to first acknowledge that cash bail is being used punitively right now and that you'll do everything you can to get rid of it. And that's what we will do. Yeah. One of the the comments you made about the risk assessment. So that's, one of the alternatives to, I guess, uh, cash bail is is still allowing judges to make other sorts of, of assessments. And one trend that's uh, at least na- that's going on nationally is is judges using algorithms to determine to come up with a form a risk assessment product or the end result to see what whether someone should be held on cash bail or held in, in jail. As you said, that these even because we like to think that algorithms are unbiased and don't have any sort of issues in terms of of they think it it eliminates the bias that may maybe that that might come along with judicial discretion, but they don't because they come with the same biases of the creators of those algorithms, and as you as you mentioned that they they sometimes don't take into account uh, the sort of dynamics uh, or the things that might change in our in our community so definitely if that were to be ever an option that's that's definitely a discussion we i would like to have and 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 share with our community is like algorithms sound great they sound like they might uh, we we might think that they are unbiased but sometimes as as some studies have shown the, the literature has shown that this is not necessarily the case because we still have human beings coming up with these algorithms. But with that, with that being said, I want to, the other question that I had or regarding some of your, some of your uh, recommendations, your policy recommendations is with the starting of a public defender's office, even though you, yeah, as you mentioned, you, as a DA, you can't, you can't start that. But I, I was curious about that because I, uh, from my understanding, the way the current system is, is that defense attorneys can sort of apply to a panel to a, a county panel of sorts, and and it's sort of there's a there's a rotation that the so the courts use this to assign private attorneys to to certain cases, and this this goes on rotation. Current system that we have is is that correct? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Okay, and and so what would a public defender's what are what are the issues with that system, and then what what would a public defender's office do to mitigate some of those issues? 
Well, I mean, the issues with that system are that, I mean, it just creates a process where the attorneys easily get overworked. You know, they get underpaid. They are not oftentimes, you know, don't have access to the resources, the investigative expert wise that a public defender's office would have. This is great because it's a, it's a, it's something to counteract the DA's office. You know, there's a chief public defense defender. It's administrative. It's got administrative staff. It's got investigators. It's got attorneys that can work together on cases. It's coalesced. It's got rules, things like that. And it's organized and it's uh, uniform. And those are things that, you know, in order, we see all over the state, you know, those PD's offices, I really admire, you know, like in Topeka, Johnson County, uh, these, these places that are PD's offices that, you know, they have common missions, they have common goals. And, you know, they, it's, it just it provides an easier access to justice, right? And that's what we see. And that's what we want is we want to break down those barriers that uh, exist um, in, you know, in the criminal justice system. We want to break down those barriers to justice. And I think through having a public defender's office, we do that because it'll make cases. I hear a lot of times people talk about how they want cases to move quicker through the system, but I'm very cautious about using that language because I know as a defense attorney that, you know, just because a case moves through the system quickly doesn't mean that it's moving through you know, that with the ends of justice being served. Sometimes cases can move through the system quickly and it just means somebody's getting convicted faster, right? Who shouldn't be. So we need to, yeah, we need to focus on efficiency in our justice system, but we also need to focus on fairness fundamentally over, that needs to be the overarching goal. So PD's office allows us to have that because it allows us to have, uh, you know, the good benefits of a PD's office is you can have one attorney that shows up to the first appearances docket from a PD's office because they're all representing the, you know, that client, the office is representing that client. And that attorney can be there for every case. And you only need one attorney. You don't need to right now, you know, when we have a docket here in Douglas County, you've got 20 different cases there might be six or seven different appointed attorneys handling those and they all have to show up. They're all having a bill for their time. They're all having to take time out of their calendar. A PD's office can really limit that because they can have one or two attorneys appear for the whole document, right? And it just, that's what we're talking about with efficiency. So, you know, it's something that uh, I know our county commissioners have been talking about. I, uh, I really hope that, you know, it's something that we can do going forward, you know, I would advocate for it just as somebody who has seen in other jurisdictions what PD's offices can do. And there would still be room for that appointment list of attorneys, right? Because sometimes the PD's office might not be able to take a case. We see in other jurisdictions, you have a PD's office, and then you have a list of appointed attorneys that do the cases that the PD's office can't handle for one reason or another. Maybe there's a conflict with the PD's office. Maybe they don't have room on their calendar. So there's still room for those appointed attorneys to take those cases. Um, it just it makes sure that we can have the ends of justice served better when we know that we have you know a more formal, structured environment for defending folks. The, in one of the, the reasons that I, I was curious about that policy, and especially the reasons that, that you gave for it were, was that because typically, and, and this may be just a, a bad image problem, a poor sort of PR problem with public defenders, but they, they often are depicted as being overworked and uh, lacking in resources. And so I was, I was just curious about that. And, and, and because it seems like in either case, you might 
get the same sort of oh yeah well and and don't get me wrong i think in general that all public defense and just defense in general resourced i've always said that even in cases where defendant can actually afford to hire a private attorney their resources and their ability are always going to be outmatched by the resources that the state has in prosecuting that case always even when you have the richest defendant right very rarely is someone able to put in the time and effort to defend themselves that the state puts into prosecuting them so i think that that fundamental that's an issue overarching regardless of whether you have a pd's office or an appointment list is the disparity in resources uh and the funding of you know in indigent services though i i our board of indigent defense services in kansas is great they work really hard to fund everything they can. And they're filled with a bunch of folks who really care about you know, funding criminal defense. Um, it's an issue that's overarching in our country right now. But I think that from a fundamental standpoint, you know, having a structured PD's office, it's more economical and it makes more sense. And I think it would fit in with the, I just think there'd be a lot of good defense attorneys who would wanna work at a PD's office in Lawrence too. I think that it would fit in with our how we like to view ourselves in Douglas County. So I think it's a great idea. One of the the final questions that I wanted to get, uh, get across to you was there's a scenario that that's been in my mind, and, and I think you know with my wife being Spanish, a, a fluent Spanish speaker, and she's also encountered this more or less in in Lawrence, uh, maybe not in in a in a strong sense, but uh, there's the, maybe the possibility for this sort of, so the, the idea of, of f uh, fair and adequate representation, uh, this is this is what this question covers. Given the, the I guess, the demographics of, of, of Lawrence, insufficient services for folks who speak, who do not speak English, uh, and, and on either side, whether it's on the defense side or, or on the, uh, the side of the, the wronged um so th this is a question about what what is what's possible to, or what you could do as uh, what or what you would do uh, if it's something that's in the power of, of the da to address the gaps and the sort of things that are offered to non-english speakers uh, because they're if they're not uh, adequately given services or translation services or 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 the they're being communicated with in an effective sense there there might be a question about whether they're being adequately and fairly represented so this is a question about, i guess what you could do what you could do and what you would do as a da to mitigate or to address some of those gaps in and representation no, I mean, that's a great question, and that exists in our, it's just another barrier to access, right, is the idea that, you know, how can we say that going into court, it's already confusing enough for folks to go into court and to be a part of our legal system, but folks who don't speak English as a first language or don't speak English, it's extremely difficult to have for them to have you know, access to that justice. And so I do think that like those gaps need to be filled in. And I do think there's a role for a DA to ensure that because like I said, we're the ones that are safeguarding justice in the courts, right? I mean, to the extent that we're we're responsible for make sure making sure justice occurs in the court system. So I do think there's a role for you know making sure that we have well, we see it a lot actually in investigation of cases too. The the idea that you know we have our our police forces, you know, 
if they're interacting with Hispanic populations and they don't know exactly how many translators do they have, how many interpreters do they have on the police force that can actually interpret an interview of an individual, uh, things like that. And how is that leading to evidence that's being collected? And is the evidence being collected in a manner where it's going to be reliable in court, right? And then it also goes back to the idea that, you know, this idea that uh, of, and we have to touch upon immigration when it comes to issues of, you know, undocumented populations in our legal system. I firmly believe that the DA has a duty in, when we say that our role is to keep the community safe, keeping the community safe to me means making sure that folks who are undocumented don't feel like because of their, that if they are involved in the criminal legal system, that it's going to affect, that it's going to get them removed from the country, right? You have a role in as a DA to make sure that doesn't happen. So a strong, you know, platform policy I have is, you know, we're not going to cooperate with ICE in how we prosecute our cases. If somebody comes, you know, is accused of a crime and they are undocumented, we're going to do everything we can in our power to make sure that the result of their criminal case does not influence their immigration status, right? It doesn't lead to them being removed from the country. Um, you can do that as DA. Because, you know, and it makes sense, too, because say that you have a white person who's an American citizen who gets a DUI, and then you have an individual who's undocumented from, you know, another country that gets a DUI. Normally, if it's their first offense, both of those individuals would be eligible for a diversion, right? And normally that diversion would have little if no ramifications on criminal history because it's not a conviction of a crime. It doesn't require jail. It, you know, after you complete the diversion, it's dismissed, all that. However, um, normally that we, what we see a lot with DAs and, you know, this happens in Douglas County is that when you apply for diversion, you have to essentially admit guilt in order to apply for a diversion. For the white guy who gets a DUI, that admission of guilt isn't going to trigger probably anything right? But for the undocumented person who gets a DUI, that admission of guilt constitutes an admission for purposes of immigration, okay? And so that can be used against that person, and that would be flagged by immigration authorities, and that would be used against them and could possibly get them removed from the country. And so our role as defense attorney is to, of course, always tell our clients that are pursuing a diversion, we won't allow our clients to do a diversion if it requires them to do to admit guilt. However, that's the standard practice for all diversions. So what can I do as a DA to make sure that doesn't happen? We'll treat folks on a level playing field, right? Which means that we'll, you know, we'll, we won't require an admission of guilt in our diversion applications in order for an individual to be accepted for a diversion. Um, because we know what the consequences could be. That's one way that we can stop, you know, that we can become a county that, you know, really cares about protecting undocumented folks in our community. You know, another thing, and going back to your question about, you know, interpreters, that's a perfect example. That's a little thing that, you know, that access to the court system has to be made available. We have to make sure that we fundamentally have, I mean, have staff that are trained that speak, you know, that speak other languages other than English. I mean, that's really important. I think a DA's office should try as hard as possible to employ prosecutors who speak those languages because we see more and more that, you know, but they can't be official interpreters in court, but they can understand the process a little bit more. So it's about creating access and it's about creating 
equity, not equality, but equity, right? And the idea that some folks are starting from a much lower position than others, and the DA's office needs to be responsible for creating that access. Well, Cooper, I, uh, before I let you let you go officially, I wanted to give you a chance to say what you think you would like uh, our listeners to take away from this conversation, and any any sort of last last words that that you would like to make sure if we didn't cover that you want to voice that you want to voice now. Well, this election is crucial. I'm not going to say it any other way that this election is the primary on August 4th in our County with what's happening in our country and in our County right now, it's a crucial election. Uh, we've seen over the last couple of months, folks taking to the streets all over our country in every city. Here in Kansas, we saw it. We saw it in Kansas City. We saw it in Wichita. We saw it here in Lawrence. We saw it in small places like Emporia. You know, folks participating in what's been called the largest protest movement this country has ever seen. And that's saying a lot. And that protest movement is saying one thing. And that thing that it's saying, it's, it's not saying, hey, we want the folks who are in power in our legal system that who have perpetuated this these issues of systemic racism and injustice for so long that we want them to stay in power but just do more training and make things better it's not saying that it's saying that we want to fundamentally reimagine what our legal system is because right now the way it is right now it's this it can't hold it can't hold it can't keep doing these things because there are there are people dying and there are people whose lives are being ruined by our system and so I hope folks understand that, you know, the DA's role in this is me as DA. It's not about what I can do. It's about what I'm willing to, you know, it's about what I'm willing to listen to others that they're already doing. It's about who I'm willing to follow and the leads that I'm willing to follow to better, you know, lead our county, bringing stakeholders in, bringing folks in from, you know, our community programs that work so well, but get so little credit, you know, bringing folks in from our mental health, you know, from Burt Ash and from, you know, DECA, our substance abuse facilities and the Willow, which is an award-winning domestic violence shelter bringing them into the fold and having them aid us in how we reimagine justice in Douglas County and how, you know, reimagining safety and what that means. Progressive prosecutors are about changing metrics. You know, we don't really, you know, progressive prosecutors are about, you know, a movement that says that we can't do things the way we've been doing them. We can't just focus on convictions. We got to focus on rehabilitation in our system. We have to repair harm. We have to repair the harm that's been caused by mass incarceration and the war on drugs and police brutality and, you know, over prosecution of communities of color. We have to repair that harm and we have to be part of the solution. So on August 4th, you know, that's the decision that folks are going to be confronted with is, you know, is our system that we have in place right now one that we're comfortable keeping or do we need to reimagine justice? And that's what our platform is. We're reimagining justice and we're proud of it. You know, we're, we're proud of the things that we represent and that we stand for. And we're proud of the movement that we're a part of, because I really do think it's one that is taking hold and that is as important now as it's ever been, which is that, you know, we need to focus on humans and not convictions. So I would encourage folks to go to our website. Of course, um, it's uh, www.vocoop, 
V-O-T-E-Coop.com. We have a lot of cool stuff on there about our platform. You know, you can go to my social media, which is, you know, on Facebook, we're Overstreet for DA. We've got an Instagram, it's Coop for DA. Twitter, it's Coop for DA. And all those things. You know, we are a campaign that's powered by people. You know, we are a people-powered campaign. The folks out there in the streets are the ones that are kind of guiding our campaign. They're part of our movement. And, you know, so I encourage folks to get involved. You know, the voter registration deadline has passed, but uh, you can still request a mail-in ballot. You know, I just talked to the somebody at the county clerk's office today. They said that they had sent out, you know, close to 17,000 mail ballots today, uh, which is insane for Douglas County for a primary. And they also said that 40% of the ballots that they sent out were for folks who had never voted in a primary election before, which is very telling that people are excited about this election. They want to get involved. They want to see things change because enough is enough. They want to fight the status quo. So, and, and vote and vote for, vote for change, vote for our progressive campaign. You know, that's, meant to, you know, reimagine justice in Douglas County. And I really thank you for having me on on the podcast. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about a lot of stuff, but clearly criminal justice is something I'm very passionate about. And it's something I look forward to talking about as DA. Well, Coop, again, uh, thank you a great deal for, for coming on the show and discussing your platform and your general thoughts about, about justice and, and how you hope to take that with you as I were you to be elected as DA. Well, thank you so much, David. This was extremely valuable. I really appreciate what you do, getting the word out to so many people in, in Douglas County about these really important elections. And I, and I thank you. And, and thank you all for, for listening. And we'll see you next time on the next episode of Lawrence Talks.